I'm Tom DeSorcy, and you've tuned in for compelling conversation on hot topics impacting Canada's fire service. This is Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by First Alert, safety you can trust. In his most recent column in Firefighting in Canada, Fire Chief Matt Pegg speaks to the pride that he still feels in his department over the incredible work of his team, something that should resonate to all of us. And it's a pleasure to have him join us today from Toronto, Ontario. Chief, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Nice to have you. Great to be here, my friend. Thank you so much. Interesting. We'll talk about the column because that's really what spawned this discussion today. But I, I love to geek out and, and get a little perspective on Toronto. I know some of the stories, but you've been with in Toronto Fire for, what, 10 years, you said? Yeah, you know, it amazes me when I think about that. I, I was hired by the City of Toronto and Toronto Fire Services in, I guess, the fall of 2013. And it just, it actually floors me to sit here and think about the fact that I've been a, I've been a part of this organization for 10 years and I've been, I've been in the Chief's office since 2016. It, it's amazing how fast time moves. Give us a sense uh, of, I mean, Toronto is the largest fire department in Canada. I mean, I, every time I hear the stories and, and how many people you have, I mean, simple call volume. What, what are the stats? What, what, are the, what are the numbers like uh, in Toronto Fire? Well, um, as you pointed out, we are the largest, the largest fire service in the country. We are just shy of 3,300 people uh, that work as part, of, as part of Toronto Fire Services and even hearing myself say that still kind of makes me shiver. It's uh, it's it, it, it's stunning actually how big this organization is. They these are these are you know a dedicated bunch of professionals that work every day. They're they're working from uh, just shy of a hundred different workplaces every day. Eighty four frontline fire stations plus fire prevention offices and mechanical garages and warehouse and you know administration and all of the different areas across the city and. From a call volume perspective, you know, it surprises me. When I look at the report yesterday for yesterday's call volume, we, our organization responded to 567 individual emergencies, and that resulted in 935 what we call unit responses. So 935 trucks and crews responded uh, yesterday alone to manage those, those emergencies. And that's in addition to the myriad of work that's happening in public education and uh, fire prevention. We had we unfortunately had a couple of critical incident or critical injury fires of late, and that means our fire investigations team have been hard at work on a nonstop basis. And it you know communications going twenty four seven. It's Tom. It's incredible, and it you know as as commonplace as it has become for me, I see those numbers every day. When I actually stop and think about that, like our crews ran ran not quite twice, but almost twice as many calls yesterday as my entire station ran when I started my career as a volunteer in 1992, in a year. Wow. And I mean, for a smaller fire department where, you know, and again, back in the day, in the 80s, uh, getting a call was a big deal for getting a single fire was something. And, and that's all we went to. But now, of course, today going to more and more, uh, you know, calls and requests for service is, is now the, the population in Toronto is not getting smaller. Is the fire department keeping up with it? So the population here is is growing. We actually just crested the three million number on official population, and we certainly know that on an incidental basis. And you know, when you factor in tourism and you know the working commute and all of those things, it's far more than three million people here in a day. But um, 
official population more than 3 million, we're very fortunate. Toronto Fire Services is actually continuing to grow. Uh, wouldn't necessarily say that it's that it's linear with population, but um, what I'm proud of is that we are growing on the basis of identified and validated risk. Um, as part of our, our accreditation program, we're, we're looking at the community risk profile on an ongoing basis and uh, matching resources to risk on the basis of analytics. So council in this past year, we just approved budget, um, has approved an additional 52 frontline positions that will be added to our complement. We're in the, pro- the recruitment process now to begin to onboard those folks and they will be hired uh, in the middle of this year and go through our 16-week Toronto Fire Academy recruit training program and will ultimately uh, hit the ground at the very end of this year. And that is the first uh, first 52 of what, what council has uh, given insofar as you can ahead of budget process. They've given, a, a, in essence, an approval in principle to an additional 52 in each of 2020, uh, 2024 and 2025. And those 156 new, new people are the number of people that we need in order to maintain our staffing levels in the face of unplanned absence. And that includes uh, everything from uh, parental and maternity leaves to ill-dependent leave, WSIB, long-term disability. And of course, as we all know, whether we're the largest fire service or the smallest fire service, when unplanned absence happens, it directly impacts our ability to, li- to, to deliver service on the front line. And we, I'm very fortunate that um, we, we have a council that has been supportive of that and has, has really worked hard to come to understand that and, of course, has translated that into, into the additional resources. And that doesn't happen without a, without a really supportive city manager, deputy city managers and senior leadership team. And then, of course, mayor and council endorsing that in what has, you know, in the backdrop of an incredibly difficult fiscal time. So we're, we're really we're really fortunate. Like other professions, uh, I guess, or maybe unlike other professions, is it hard or is it uh, is it easy to to find people? That's a struggle these days. No matter what what uh, what you do in terms of uh, for a living, what what your job is is going to be, it's it's hard for people now. Forget the volunteer side of the fire service. I mean, people don't go to work anymore for some reason. Is that a problem in your world? It is. We certainly are seeing. Uh, the number of applicants and the number of qualified applicants is definitely declining. So there, there was a point where for any, for any, op- certainly operations firefighters or, you know, frontline firefighter positions in the, uh, I remember days when we would have literally thousands of applicants. Uh, those numbers are, are significantly less. Some of that is still the hangover of COVID-19 restrictions um, we are a client of the candidate testing service here in Ontario that's run through OFAI. And that, of course, when the, when the COVID restrictions happened, those, that's an example of one of the services that was forced to shut down. So that, that really created a backlog or some compression problems in that, that talent flow, if you will, or the, the certification process. So we're, we're continuing to work through that, but I am really, really impressed with the caliber of people. And, you know, Tom, it is one of the things that just blows my mind is when we do recruit graduations and I get to do the cap and badge presentation and shake everybody's hand. And it's one of my favorite uh, times of the year. But we also, when I read and hear the, the MC read the qualifications of these folks that are coming into these roles, it is fascinating 
I mean, you know, I, I often will stand there and joke with with whether it's the mayor or whatever elected official is with me. And, you know, the standing kind of quiet joke will be, you know, wow, am I ever glad I'm not competing for these jobs today? Because like this this person's resume is incredible. And, you know, we're seeing people academically for sure. I mean, extraordinary levels of academic achievement, but equally impressive are the life experiences that are coming. And this just wide, broad, diverse set of backgrounds and skills and experiences and military service. And it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, these are people who are putting their hand up and are seeking out an opportunity to help people in their very worst day. And they're coming here to do that under some of, candidly, some of the most challenging and dynamic environment or one of the most challenging and dynamic environments in the country. And I respect every one of them for that. Because there is, I don't think there's any greater calling than, you know, being there to help people when they need it. But I also don't think there's any, I, I, w- I was talking to a recent recruit yesterday and he, he explained to me that he is so excited because he has the opportunity to make a difference in, in some of the most, the most needy people's lives in our city, people that need to help the most. And he said, I go home, I go home at the end of my shift and I feel good about about what I'm, you know, making a difference in a society I care about. And man, if we can keep, if we can keep hiring people like that for the next 200 years, we're going to be in great shape. It, you know, and going back to the column that you wrote in, in firefighting in Canada, and it would be, I think someone, you wouldn't blame someone for thinking that a person of, of your position in the largest fire department in Canada with 3,300 people that the you don't you don't really have to care what goes on in your department you have people that do that right i mean people would come to think well he doesn't know anybody in his in his group but to come out and say that you're in awe of of what they do uh is it is it hard to stay connected with that many people oh heavens it is hard you know the the truth tom is this there and and it it amazes me to even say it hear myself say it is a bit of a punch in the face but Every single day that I am out and about in this organization, I meet members of our team who I am meeting for the very first time. And that is incredible. So do, do I know, have I had the privilege of meeting and do I, do I personally know and know the names of all 3,300 people here? I do not. It's funny because we, we have, you and I have peers and, you know, we often talk about this at, at chiefs conferences and other places where there, there are a lot of people that just assume that given what I do and where I do it that, you know, I just, I have people that do these things. Right. And it's like, well, you know, we'll just kind of deal. And I do, I just deal with four or five people. I do like everyone else. I have a, I have a direct, a team of direct reporting. We call it our command team. And, you know, sure. I'm with them every day. And, you know, there's a small group of people, but it is, I'll, I'll share with you in all honesty, Tom, it is really hard for me. It's actually one of the most challenging things for me to not have those personal connections with everybody in this organization. I started as a volunteer in a department in a station that had 21 people. And, you know, my whole time in Georgina, I knew the names, I knew the name of every single person that worked there. And I knew the overwhelming majority of their families. And then as my career progressed, you know, that was, that was the case, you know, that continued that way. As I went to bigger and bigger, it got harder and harder. And coming here, I don't and I can't. But it is the reason why I, I feel that it's so important to, for me to be as involved as I can be 
in as much as I can be. And I will never be at everything. There's, a, you know, our, our, there's 100 and almost 70,000 emergency calls here a year. I don't think I'm at 100 calls a year. But I go to I go to the I go to every fatal that happens. I go to critical injuries. I go to major significant incidents. And I got to tell you, there those are hard scenes. But the thing I enjoy about it the most is once I'm done, you know, I get my command briefing. I generally do the media briefings and all of that sort of thing. The best part of that experience for me is walking around the fire scene and 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 through the rehab sector and just shaking hands and saying thank you and. Tom, I watch these people every day. Like I get a front row seat to watch people do absolutely extraordinary things. And they're not doing that because it's got nothing to do with me. That's because they are legitimate pros and they're trained and they do, they do things that just leave me gobsmacked every day. And all I can do is get back in my car, you know, and just sit there and be so thankful for I am so blessed to, to do what I do and to do it with the people I do it with and to do it in an industry across our country that we enjoy. And that is something that when, you know, when my time in this role is done, I'm going to look back on forever and be thankful for. I love the, the sport analogy, you know, that you use. And I, I do those all the time. And I had the same experience, you know, where, where I show up at a scene first uh, at an emergency at a motor vehicle incident uh, a while back. And and the crew wasn't far behind me, but a crew is three people coming on an engine. And mm-hmm. when those three people showed up just to look, it was like a hockey line coming over the boards. They came jumping out, grabbed the gear, went to work and dealt with the patient. And I went, wow. And and I guess for me, I mean, I had a hand in creating that. I These people, I interviewed each and every one of them and introduced them to each other. And they are part of that team. So it's it's important. I really I really appreciate that. How for you? I mean, you're very public on your mental uh, care uh, mm-hmm. and and telling people, telling all of us uh, about you know looking after yourself. What role does this play to be out there and visiting and shaking hands with all the people? What does that do for you personally in terms of your men- your mental well being? Well, I think a couple of things. I think first and foremost, it allows me to maintain at least some kind of a connection to my past and to the, you know, to my roots and where I started. And for me, it's really important that I want people to understand. And it's not that I do it because I want them. It's not that I want to be seen doing it, you know, in the course of my duties every day, how can I go and be thinking about policy issues and budget business cases and, you know, all of this work that happens in, in my world how do I go and make the best recommendations and the best decisions and the best requests for resourcing if I don't actually understand what's happening on the very front lines of our organization? And the only way for me, that, that at least I feel, the only way for me to truly stay connected to the pressures and the stresses and the realities that our, that our folks are facing is to see it. And that's what I choose to do. I appreciate that and you know admittedly my approach to being the chief with respect to being engaged is different than former chiefs it's different than a lot of other chiefs and quite frankly i'm fully confident and i expect that whoever you know, when the time comes that the you know whoever takes over after me will undo undoubtedly do it differently again so i don't i don't think there is a right answer but there's a right answer for me and that is I, I am just someone who believes that that I need to be there when things are at their worst. And that is not that has nothing to do with, you know, I am of no illusion where, 
you know, that I am the key to successful operations. That is just nonsense. It's not about, you know, well, if I show up, everything will go well. It's not that. It's about, I need to be there because I, I want to understand what's happening in our, in our community. And I have such a privilege to, you know, with, with profile and the access to media and all of that thing, all of those things that I get to do. And I'm just, every time that I have an experience and every time I can be present when, you know, whether it's an emergency scene or a training scenario, whatever it is, I can speak about it from the firsthand perspective. And that is, that is necessary. And, you know, at the end of the day, Tom, I'm still a firefighter and I still, I still miss my, my boots and bunker pants and I miss the hose and I miss that, you know, I, I miss it because it's, it's my roots. It's how I started. And it is just so rewarding to, to, to sit there and watch the orchestration of these massive incidents that are, you know, in our case, often hundreds of people that are coming together in this thing that literally looks like a, well, it looks like a symphony. And, you know, these are just, these are well-trained people that are dedicated, that are putting themselves and sometimes their lives on the line to save others and in the, in the performance of public safety. And, um, man, I have, a, I have such an incredible privilege to watch that happen every day. It just, it, it overwhelms me. We have to congratulate ourselves sometimes. We we have to pat ourselves on the back because if we don't know who will, and I think that at the end of the day, recognize the fact that we are responsible for this. We have mm-hmm. a large role. Um, I, I mean, I'm a proponent of, of networking and staying in touch and learning from others. And as a smaller fire department, learning from the larger fire departments, does that go both ways? Can a larger de- fire department learn from the smaller oh. ones, from the volunteers, or should they learn more? Should they look, reach out and find out? 100% it does. And, and it does. And we do. And I do. And, you know, I, I mean, sure. I, I, I get the opportunity to write these columns and to do the keynote speeches and, you know, people tell me that it makes a difference for them. And I'm proud of that. And I, and I hope it does, but I, as much as the next person get to sit, you know, I, I get to listen to everyone else around me teach and I learn from every one of them. And, you know, I'll tell you, Tom, I think one of the biggest misconceptions in the Canadian fire service, not the only one, but one of the biggest misconceptions is anyone that suggests that, well, you know, you know, a a small town or a volunteer fire chief, for example, doesn't, you know, there's not really a lot to that. Are you serious? A fire chief has whether you are the chief of the Toronto Fire Services or you are the fire chief of the smallest organization in the country, you have the same statutory responsibilities. They are the same. The difference is resourcing. Sure, there's maybe less risk and there's maybe less volume, but the responsibilities, the demands, the stresses, the pressures, the expectations, they're exactly the same. And I think that there is absolutely the, the, both the opportunity and the need for us to learn from each other. There are things that, you know, there are experiences that I have that I can share that may, that may help somebody, you know, make it better. But there are also things that I can learn because when I get the chance to sit and learn from leaders who, who, have, to, who have to often go it alone, who don't have the benefit of having a dedicated, you know, a team of dedicated full-time resources around them they can draw on, man, there's a lot that I can learn about that because those people, by their very nature, they're good managers of time they're good they're good at setting priorities they're they're they have in you know initiative and stick-to-itiveness and all of these things and um we we need to learn from from everyone and i am 
I will never spend one minute in this career in the, the position I'm blessed to hold, believing that because we are the biggest, there's nothing for us to learn. That is absolute garbage. We, we are just, we're part of a bigger system. We have a role to play. And that means I have a responsibility to teach and share, but I also have a responsibility to listen and learn. And I think when we both, when, when we do all of those things, we all get stronger. I think we need to spend more time talking with the, the firefighters at larger departments and giving them a taste of what we do in the volunteer world. Uh, the same job as them, arguably the same job, same thing. But, you know, when I have a discussion with a, with a career firefighter in a metro department and I ask them, what happens at the end of your shift? Um, and you're on a call and you're on a house fire. Uh, a new shift comes in, they said. And I said, well, in our world, that's not the case. I don't have a new shift. I have uh, my my protocols at eight o'clock in the morning are seeing who has to go to work and who can stay. And that shocks them. Absolutely. It's so indicative of the diversity that is our country and the diversity that exists across the country and in every in every corner of the fire service, because at the end of the day, the, the job that's being done is the same. Right. If we if we just take something as simple as a fire, you know, fighting, fighting a fire is still fighting a fire. Um, you know, it may be different. The density may be different. The vertical height may be different. All of those things. But the the conditions that we do it in and the the systems we do it in and the, you know, like you just said, I, I remember those days well, Tom, where, you know, part of the incident commander's responsibility was was paying attention to the time so that because there are people that just have to go to work. And we have to plan for that and we had to manage that. And no, that's not something that happens here, right? We don't, we don't have to think about that. There's a shift change that happens. And, you know, the other side is true here. It is such a massive logistics exercise to facilitate that change and maintain frontline coverage that that, that ends up being an entire sector in our incident management system at a big incident. It's just managing the logistics of the people transfer. But um, same job just done differently under different circumstances. And there's things to learn on both sides. I think if we could leave a message for, uh, for, you, for you to leave a message with, uh, with a fire chief who may be listening, that is of a smaller department that is, you know, maybe at their wits end in terms of trying to recruit people, trying to, uh, you know, get frustrated about the calls that they do go on with limited numbers. Is there a message you can leave uh, or at least pass on uh, maybe encouragement to say that, you know, you're not alone. I sure can. And and here's what it is. I get it and I hear you. And and I'll share just a quick a quick truth Tom that happened that literally happened yesterday. So I was on a call, so it was based on WebEx, but I, I had my command team on a on a very important meeting yesterday afternoon. And so that's myself and the deputies and uh, the the office of the fire chief staff. And literally the topic of discussion was workload management and how how are we going to prioritize these things because we do not have enough resources to meet the need and we're tired and we're exhausted and we're stressed and how are we going to get these things done without without making people sick and without burning out that's in the largest organization in the country and it is that is a primary topic of conversation for me because it's a reality here so i will say to you know to anyone that's listening to this i hear you and it, you know, I wish I had the magic answer, but the way I'm approaching this and the way my team is, we, we do have to be honest with the fact that there, there, we can only do so much. And that means we have to become, sometimes uncomfortably, we have to become good priority setters. 
And, you know, one of the things I learned primarily through COVID is when, when everything is a priority, nothing is. So, you know, there are times when we have to just admit we can't do it all. So we're going to be very diligent and very intentional about prioritizing what matters the most and what we can realistically achieve with the resources we have. And that means that sometimes some things have to wait, some things have to fall off the plate. And it brings us back to core values, which is, you know, let's let's stay focused on the things that have a direct health and safety impact, both public safety and health and safety of our people. Let's continue to be conscious about and prioritize physical and emotional and mental health and wellness within our organization. And, you know, let's make sure that we are we are investing our the time that we have in the highest in the things that have the highest return on investment from a service delivery and a public safety perspective. So where it's it's incredible because we really are all in the same boat and I don't know that any of us are ever going to have all of the resources we need to to meet the demands but I think that uh, just being honest about that and um, I was really proud of my team yesterday because I had every member of my team literally every member in their own way put their hand up and say you know what I'm really tired and and I I do too and I said like I am this week has been really hard and I'm really tired too and that means that we we need to find some way we need to find some ways to give each other some relief. And that's what that's actually what we're thinking about today. We're focused on today is how how we're going to do that and not and still meet the needs of, of everyone on our front lines and the in our case, the three million people that demand that rely on us. So tough work. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your uh, your uh, kindness and your friendship and uh, and the good words. Uh, always a pleasure. I hope uh, we can do this again. We can. And may I just say, well, uh, well, we're still recording. Um, congratulations on your retirement. And I got to, I've got to know you, of course, through everything that we do. And, and, and I mean, this is your friend. I hope that you will never forget the impact that you have had on lives around across this country. And that includes mine. And I'm, I'm proud to serve alongside you. I'm proud to know you and uh, love you like a brother and wish you all the best. Humbled by that uh, comment. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining Firefighting in Canada, the podcast brought to you by First Alert Safety you can trust. For more episodes, visit firefightingincanada.com.